And so today I want to I want to close out this series as we've been looking at the upper room discourse with how Jesus closed out his time with his disciples before he went to the cross. There's this really unique um, prayer in John 17. It's actually it's actually um, one of the only prayers that we have of Jesus in the scriptures, and it is the longest one. And Jesus lets his disciples. Uh, eavesdrop into his prayer with his Father in heaven on this particular occasion. And I find it so interesting what he prays uh, for his disciples in that, uh, in that moment there. Um, and, and the question that I want us to consider is this. Um, is really what is the Lord calling us to? Because I think we've, we've, been, we've been saying, here's what we sense God is calling us to as a body, as a community of believers. But the question is, what, what is he calling you to personally? Um, and, so, um, and so the thing that I've noticed throughout this whole upper room discourse um, that I think that we really have to understand is Jesus's vision for his disciples' relationship to the world. If you look at this word, the word world in the Greek is, is cosmos. Um, and, and Jesus, um, especially in the Gospel of John, uh, the, the word uh, cosmos is mentioned like a, a ton, okay? I think like 50 or 60 times in the, in the book of John. But in, this, in John chapter 17, uh, or in, during this meal rather, um, in John you know, 12 through 17, he uses this word over 30 times. Because he wants his disciples to be clear on what their relationship to the world is. And so listen, listen to some of the things that are said by John, uh, either in uh, 1 John, which is a letter that he wrote, or the book of John. Um, here are some of the things uh, that he says about the dynamics of disciples' relationship to the world. Um, in John chapter 1, verse 9, he says this, the world... Was the cosmos was made through him, yet the world, the cosmos, did not know him. John chapter 3, a, a familiar verse for you, but I want to put it in more context. For God so loved the world, the cosmos, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world, the cosmos, to condemn the world. That's not why he sent him into the world, he says. But, um, <clears throat> but in order that the world might be saved through him. And, the, and verse uh, 19 goes on to say this, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In 1 John Five, he says this, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. First John 3, 8, the reason the son of God appears was to destroy the works of the devil. So what you get is this sense that because sin has entered the world, that now this world, this cosmos, everything in it and everyone in it is, is enemy territory, driven by the enemy. But Jesus has come into the world to deliver the, the, the lost sons and daughters of God from the power of the evil one. That, that's the whole reason why Jesus came. And, and the, the point being, John saw Jesus engaging the world in a significant way 
But it's not just about how Jesus engaged the world in a significant way. It's about how he has now called us to engage the world in a significant way and in an intentional way because we are now disciples of Jesus. Cosmos in the scripture is less about the physical creation of the earth and most certainly more about the force of unrighteousness within the earth. And I don't have to convince you of what that force is, right? You see it around you, but very very little of the time that we see it in the world, that we feel its presence in the world, do we ascribe it to the evil one. We'd rather ascribe it to chance or that just happened to happen instead of the force of unrighteousness that surrounds us. I think the enemy wants us to characterize and mock the, wor- the, the, uh, the works of the enemy in this world and therefore minimize it. I think the enemy wants us to think that life is random and that sometimes things just happen. I think the enemy wants us to cut this verse out of the Bible from 1 Peter. Be sober-minded, Peter writes. Be watchful. That's a command. Be watchful. Okay, that's a command to every single Christian in the world. Be watchful. What are we to be watchful for? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is what the enemy is actively doing in this world today. Okay? Be watchful. So how are we called to be watchful? I want to share that with you this morning. To put it simply, the world or the cosmos is everything against everything Jesus is about, all right? The world is everything against everything Jesus is about. Would you say that with me? The world is everything against everything Jesus is about. So so what are some examples of that? Jesus is about forgiveness. The force of this world is about revenge. Jesus is about walking in the light. The force of this world is about hiding in the darkness. Jesus is about obedience to the Father. The world is about rebellion against the Father's word. In this prayer, it's shocking, friends. The one thing that Jesus does not pray about that we expect him to is that we be taken out of this world. He does not pray for that one time. So how will we, as God's people, go about intentionally engaging in this world in such a way that brings about the kingdom of God. Why does Jesus leave us here in this world? And and I would argue this, that there are some things that we can only learn in this world that will prepare us for eternity. We can only learn our great need of Jesus in this world. We can only learn our indescribable weakness and dependence in this world. We can only learn the strength, the power, and the influence of the enemy in this world. So that shows us what we're saved from. We can only learn to share in the fellowship of his sufferings in this world. We can only share in the mission of his redemption in this world. But how will we thrive in this world? How will we not be consumed 
in this world. I think John chapter 17 gives us three truths that we are called to consistently to believe if we're going to engage in this world in a meaningful, helpful, and redemptive way. And this is our big idea for today. In Jesus, we are kept from, sanctified in, and sent unto this world to do greater things. Those are the three kind of big things that I see in John chapter 17 as Jesus prays to his Father in heaven for me and for you that we are, that we are to be kept from this world, sanctified from the power of this world, sanctified in the presence of this world, and sent out for the redemption of the world. So as I, sh- as I share these, I want you to picture this with me, kids, all right, and adults. I'm a, I'm a visual learner. I'm a kid at heart, okay? Anybody else? Maybe a few of you. Anybody ever been scuba diving before? Anybody? A couple. Of, oh, you have, that's, I didn't know that, friends. You learn something new about your friends every day. So in scuba diving, I, I think this is how scuba diving works. You, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Before you go into the water, you put on this mask, right? And this mask has a tank and a hose that's connected to it. And that tank has what we call oxygen in it. Am I, am I doing good so far, scuba divers? And that oxygen comes into that mask, and the mask is sealed on your face so that you can breathe when you go underwater for long periods of time. I think these truths that we are called to believe are like that oxygen tank that a scuba diver wears as they go under the surface of the water. And what what in essence happens is that we are taking the environment of land, oxygen, right? And we're taking it into the environment of being underwater so that we can survive in a different kind of atmosphere, right? In a different kind of context. I think what we're doing as Christians in this world is we're taking kind of the, the, the eternal oxygen of God, we're loading it up into the tank, breathing it in as we live in this world faithfully. Now, if we were to breathe in the, the water and try to get to draw out oxygen, we would certainly drown. I think this is a perfect example of what we do when we're trying to get life from the world that only God can give. So these three truths that we're called to believe come straight out of John 17. And, and what we're really doing here is we're strapping on this, this, this mask that has oxygen, right? So that we can live faithfully in this world because Jesus desires so much that you and I would be engaged in this world for the redemption of this world and so that we could be completed in the faith as we journey toward Christ. So let's look at this first point here from John chapter 17. And there's a, there, I could preach... Uh, you could probably preach 30 sermons from John chapter 17. So I'm not going to do justice to the entire chapter, but I think we are going to look at some parts of this prayer that are going to be very helpful for us. So the first point is this, is that in Jesus, we are kept from the power of this world. So let's turn to John chapter 17. We're going to start with verse 9, okay? You know, it's so, it's so interesting that Jesus prays that we would be kept by the Father, if you go back through the, the uh, John chapter 17, that word resurfaces over and over and over again. Uh, but when you think about it, what Jesus is addressing in his prayer to the Father on our behalf is, is he's addressing our core fear on this earth, which is this, that the Lord would forget us, that the Lord would not hear us, that the Lord would abandon us because we would let him down. He's addressing the kind of the baseline core fear. But the truth is, 
and, and I really mean this, we will never be able to grow in a relationship with Christ or live on mission with him until we are first secure in our salvation. There are so many believers, and, and me at times, I, I drift into this too, when we lose security, we start grasping for earning our salvation. But the thing that, that Jesus wants to communicate uh, to his Father and pray that it would be embodied in us is that we'd be secure, that we would know that we are in Christ and that nothing can change that because you'll never be able to effectively live on mission and you'll never be able to grow in Christ until you know that you are secure. Listen to what he says in John 17, verse nine. Jesus is praying, he says, I'm praying for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, Father, because they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, Jesus says, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, Jesus says, except for the one he's talking about, Judas, the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus keeping us. All right, so here's what John 17 kind of lays out for us. Can you throw up that triangle for us? Thanks, Juan. So John 17, I kind of pictured it like this triangle that has a base, and that base is 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 a significant, significant enough to hold your sanctification or your growth in Christ and your calling to live on mission with Jesus because there's no such thing as Christians who aren't growing in Christ or living on mission with Christ, right? Amen? There's no such thing. So the, the thing is is that, is that John is communicating from the outset that we are kept, and that is the baseline of every Christian. No matter what your life produces or how much or how little you change, you are kept in Christ. That Jesus says that, that the Father loses none of which that are entrusted to him. That means you can't outrun God's grace. That every corner, he's gonna meet you if you belong to him. And he's gonna draw you back. And that gives us such a great confidence in this world. But here's how, here's how I think Christians often live. Juan, can you go to the next slide? Or whoever's back there, yeah, I think it's Juan. Um, I think this is how we often live. We, we think, I've got to get busy doing things for God. I've got to live on mission. What kind of Christian am I if I don't live on mission? And then we say, okay, well, I'm living on mission. I'm trying to become more like Jesus. I'm trying to produce something in my life that would make the Father keep me. And we live our lives that way, but we're shaking all over the place. I was talking to our MC. I think this is, the, this is the thing that separates Christianity from every other world religion, is that the, the work of Jesus through the resurrection lays this foundation that is unshakable for Christians. In every other world religion, you're never quite sure where you stand with the big man, are you? You're not. You're always trying. You're always seeking these good works. You're trying to change yourself so that the Father might keep you. Not in Christianity. The Father keeps you. That is the baseline. And he is sovereign over our growth 
and after how we live on mission. There's this temptation, I think, to live like this. Listen, but but listen to what God's word teaches about your eternal security. John chapter three, verse 36, he goes on to say this. Whoever believes, and and children, kids, I want you to hear this, okay? Because I think it, oftentimes what we, what we hear as elders in the church, when you come into the life of this church, you say, hey, I want to become, I want to become a, a, maybe a follower of Jesus or I want to come in from another church. I want to covenant partner with this church. What we often hear when we ask people what their story is, is we hear their good works instead of their good savior, okay? There's a big difference in this church in what we mean about your salvation. We think it all hangs on Jesus. And whatever comes outside of that, it's, it's glory to God. Here's the truth. Here's how you can know that you are kept in Christ. Whoever Jesus says this in John 3, right after that real famous verse that we read a few minutes ago. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Does it say whoever lives on mission for Jesus has eternal life? Whoever shows that they're different than they were before has eternal life? No, it says whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's a hard text to read, isn't it? What he's saying is that the power of the evil one is over all the souls of this earth. And only in Christ, only by believing in Christ, are we rescued out of that dominion, out of that sphere, and we're made new. And he says this, yet I give them eternal life that they will never perish And hang on to this truth. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. What an image, friends. That is what is true for you if you believe that Jesus Christ has raised from the dead and delivered you from your sins and and set you free in Christ. That's, That's what is true for you. No one, no thing, no circumstance, nothing could snatch you out of his hand. That's great news this morning. If that doesn't get you fired up, you might want to turn your triangle around, all right? If you are in Christ, you need to know that his keeping power is stronger than your straying tendencies. I think oftentimes we look at our sanctification and and what that word means is it's 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 this element of salvation that is incremental instead of instantaneous. I think a lot of times we look at our sanctification and we try to put our trust in it. And either, you know, if we think we're doing well at it or if we're doing poorly at it. And, uh, and so then we, we tend to look at when we stray and we have to repent as this really super negative thing that we actually need this Savior uh, to save us. You know, it's kind of this weird thing. But, but if you're in Christ, his keeping power is stronger than your straying tendencies. And when we get to that place in our walk, where the foundation of our eternal security is actually something that you functionally trust on a day-to-day basis, we see ourselves being made more like Jesus, sanctified, and living on mission with him because we're safe. We will never grow in our relationship with God until we know that we are saved from God's wrath against sin in Jesus and that we are fully and perfectly loved, treasured, and delighted in by our heavenly Father. What is it that you, this morning, depend on for your eternal security? If someone were to ask you, how do you know you're going to heaven? What is the first thing that you would say? Not what you think the preacher wants to hear, but what is the first thing that you would say? Would you look to a record of rights and wrongs? 
Would you look to your progress in the gospel? Would you look to how much money you give? Would you look to how often you serve? Or would you look to the risen Christ himself? Because that's the answer. That's the only way you'll ever be secure enough to be sanctified and be about this mission that God has called us to. We obey from a place of security, not for a place of security, church. All right, so let's keep going here. Here's what we see, here's what we see in this prayer. In Jesus, number two, we're sanctified in the presence of the world. So it's so interesting that Jesus doesn't want to take us out of the world, but he wants to change us as the world watches. So let's bring up those triangles again, Juan. Yeah, can we bring, is there a slide where they're both together? Maybe they're, oh, perfect. You're killing it, man. Great job. Um, so we're sanctified in Christ because we're kept in Christ, and then we're sent on mission. Um, so becoming holy in our, in our own strength is something that we will never, ever, ever be able to trust. Jesus continues to build from this positional security that we have with our Father in heaven by addressing the opponent of our security. He's addressing the enemy himself and the playground that is known as this world. Um, as, so listen to John chapter 14 with that image in mind right there. John, John chapter 17, verse 14 with that image in mind. John 17 says this as Jesus is praying. He says, I have given them your word. He's talking about the disciples. He's talking about me and he's talking about you. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Remember last week? We talked about how we should expect the world to hate us because of our faith. What The word that we trust, we're not gonna be the kind of people that are hated because of who we are, but because of who we trust, right? <clears throat> the world has hated them because they're not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of this world. Now, some of us wish that he would take us out of this world, don't we? Let's be honest. Have you had a moment this week where you said, Jesus, just take me out of this world. I don't want to be here anymore. Of course you have. Of course you have. It would be easier to be with the Father for all things to be made new. But the work that God is doing in you right now is going to make Jesus Christ all the sweeter in eternity. There's some things that we can only learn on this earth. And so in those moments, we have to say, God, you are sovereign. You have me here for a reason. I don't want to miss what you have right in front of me. He says, I'm not praying that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them. And he adds a qualifier on to the keeping this time. From the what? The evil one. So don't just keep them, but keep them from the evil one. The one that's against everything Jesus is about, remember? They are not of this world just as I am not of this world. And then he says, how you will keep them from the evil one is by sanctifying them in the truth. And then he goes on to qualify what truth is. Because truth is a really subjective thing in our world today, isn't it? We talked about that last week. The objectivity is this. Your word is truth. And this is the foundational element to the keeping that Christ offers us. If it's not by his word, it's by someone else's word. And, and so here's the thing that I notice about this, is that there is, a, there is a massive difference in being kept from the power of this world and being kept from the influence of this world. Huge difference in that, right? It's important that we make this distinction because it could cause us to doubt whether or not we see God keeping us when we're tempted by evil. Because you are going to be tempted by evil if you're on mission with Jesus. In fact, it is the very first thing that met Jesus 
when his public ministry was not I mean, baptized, you know, next day, you know, uh, you know fasting, um, not maybe not exactly next day, but fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, tempted, right? It's like the first thing that happens in Jesus' ministry. Why are we surprised when we're tempted? If it's the first thing that happened to Jesus, it's gonna happen to us too. So where do we run when we're tempted? We think, oh, the devil's after me, you know? It's really this problem, but really the gates of hell are shaking when you're being tempted. And temptation through these spiritual attacks isn't sin. If Jesus was tempted, yet he remained sinless, it must be possible to be tempted and not sin, right? But I think we experience that victory so little that we associate temptation with sin. It only becomes sin when you and I make an agreement with the temptation and we enter into sin. Jesus prays that you and I would be kept from the power of the evil one and also that the influence of the enemy would not overcome us. Now, sanctification is tied to the idea of power over the evil one and influence over the enemy in this world. It's this keeping power of the Father alive in our hearts on a day-to-day basis that gives us confidence that we are a new creation. Now, when you think about your track record of obedience, don't hang your confidence on that. Hang your confidence on the one that keeps keeping you. And as we grow in Christ, we look back in the rearview mirror and we see, man, you know, I'm not what I hoped I would be at this point in my life, but I'm sure glad I'm not what I was. Amen? That's our story as the church. That's our story. That's our experience. Sanctification in truth. Truth is his word. It's not how I feel. It's not what my friends think or what your friends experience. It's his word. Now, sanctification is this process of rewiring us into the image of Jesus over the course of our lives as we trust his truth more and more and more. See, we're trying to sanctify ourselves by somebody's truth. We're trying to change ourselves by somebody else's thoughts, somebody else's truth. And the truth, about, the truth of who Jesus is, what he's come to do in this world, is the only one that actually changes you in such a way that you inherit eternal life. We are always trying to conform to some kind of image. And we talked about this last week, how conformity uh, is, is, a, uh, is something that's happening to all of us, whether we know it or not. But in that moment, um, when, when we inherit salvation, we become believers through faith, our hearts embrace Jesus. But the reality is, is that when you first become a believer, you don't really look like Jesus yet, do you? Huh? Did any, was anybody instantly uh, sanctified when you came to faith? Good, good. I'm, just, I'm just making sure I'm not the only one. Um, and you think about it, though. I mean, it really makes sense, though, because just like all newborn babies kind of look the same, I mean, no offense, right? They kind of they look the same. I mean, their faces are all mushed up. They don't have definition. I mean, your babies are all beautiful, okay? They really are. But they just don't look the way they're going to look yet. I, th- I think when we expect our spiritual maturity to kind of be instantaneous, what we're, what, it'd be like this. It'd be like me hoping that Roman came out of the womb with a beard. Isn't that a weird image? Why are we so upset with the process of God changing us over time in the midst of a lost and dying world? Because how God changes us and he sanctifies us through his word is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an object lesson, it is, a, um, it is an image for the world to see that we are secure enough to admit our flaws and our failures and our sin 
and to be changed by a God who loves us. It shows the world his character and his nature. So the Lord knows that, and we get so discouraged with this process of sanctification. But it is a process. And our enemy, who has power and influence this world, he is is the accuser. That is his name. That that, That is his quality. He is an accuser first and foremost. And, you know, Satan is his name, and slinging accusations is his game. It's what he does. He's constantly trying uh, to make you believe and convince you that there's no way you can be a Christian because of what you've done. Constantly. And how many times do you come in an agreement with that and say, yeah, you're probably right? Over and over and over again we do that. And he does this best when we're isolated because we believe it in these moments. But the gospel of Jesus says this, it's never, ever, ever been about you. It's not been about your good works. It's not been about your filthy rags. It's never been about you. It's always been about Christ. Your best works are filthy rags and your most disgraceful actions have been washed white as snow, church. That is the truth of the gospel. Isn't that good news? It's really good news. So how does he keep us from the evil one? Glad you asked. Colossians chapter two, verses 13 through 15. Paul writes as he sees how the Lord is keeping us from the evil one. He says this, and you, meaning me and you, the church in Colossae, every Christian that's walked the face of the planet, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You were dead. If you're not in Christ, he says, you are dead. And you think, man, that's really offensive. Yes, the gospel is offensive. It's the kindest thing God can say to us, though. Anything we've attempted outside of Christ, dead, no heartbeat. Because it won't last this world. It won't, it won't, it won't outlast what we see. And you were dead, and as offensive as that is, work with me here. God made alive together with him with Jesus, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, and he does this by canceling the record of debt, debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. And when Jesus, the perfect righteous one, the only one that doesn't deserve to die, the only one that really wasn't dead, when he embraced death on the cross, Here's what happened. Here's what happened in hell. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When Jesus, what Jesus did through the cross and resurrection is that he made us alive spiritually. Even though our bodies are wasting away, even though we're deteriorating, Alive, we are looking more and more like Jesus every day. He put the scuba mask on your face to breathe in a different kind of air. And now we're figuring out how to scuba dive in this world, aren't we? We're figuring out how to live in this world and not breathe in the air of this world. And for the Christian, we can do this with confidence and presence. We don't have to say, I just wish I'd get out of here because our enemy has been disarmed. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't have influence. It means that he doesn't have power. And so his, when his influence turns into sin is when we release, we relinquish power. We basically say, I, you know what? 
Yeah, the, the cross went for me here. I'm gonna live your way instead. And so we come into this agreement and that's what we call sin. But because he doesn't have power and we live this way in community, we're not going to drown. It is not going to be the end of us because Jesus has triumphed over the devil and the evil one has lost his authority to keep us from God. And now the cross puts the enemy and his schemes open publicly, the scriptures say, for open shame because of his triumphant resurrection. He's all bark and no bite when we're in Christ. For this victorious life that God has called you to and he's given you power to live in, what would need to happen in how you think about yourself to have joy in this sanctification process? What would need to happen? How would you need to see yourself? Maybe you need to see yourself as not just that dirty, rotten sinner who can never get it right, but maybe as a deeply beloved son or daughter of God whom Christ gave himself for. What would you need to think differently about Jesus, about the enemy, about life in this world? Because it's not this world that's the problem with our sanctification. It's how the world entices what's inside of our hearts and we come into agreement with it. And Jesus has come to give us the fresh oxygen of his word to sanctify us, to make us holy as he is holy, friends. Let me land the plane here. In Jesus, we're sent out for the redemption of the world. Listen to John 17, 18 and 19. As you sent me into the world, Jesus says, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. When was the last time that you walked into your office, kids, your classroom, friends, your neighborhood, you know, your streets or your home, knowing that the Holy Spirit has sent you? We don't drift into sending. Sending is intentional. When I was in late middle school and early high school, the Lord sent for me. This is how I know this is true. I, I, there is no way I would have ever chosen Christ on my own. He had to send for me. Kids, even though some of you are, you know, you're raised in a Christian home, there is no drifting into Christianity. We have to see that the Lord has been sent for us and we have been sent out into the harvest as well. I was one of those um, kids that, that greater things is honestly hoping to reach. Um, I was lost as I could be and nothing in my life was working the way that I'd hope it'd be. Yet Jesus sent for me. He sent these two kids to me, these two peers to me, one older, one the same age. Their names were Chad and Scott. And not just to play, can you throw that picture up one? Not just to play baseball, not just to play basketball with me, but the Lord sent these guys for me. And they were so intentional with me that I received the gospel through two peers when I was like in middle school and high school. And not only that, the Lord was doing a work back, this is my junior year on our baseball team. The Lord was doing a work to send all of us into the world. All three of us are pastors now. And um, I just, I just think, God, what do you want to do with this church? What if greater things is about seeing kids like Ryan 
come into the church for the first time, be transformed by the gospel and be sent out into the world. Friends, will will we be the kind of people that are sent by the gospel because we're so secure in who Jesus is and we know we're not where we want to be? Friends, will we be the kind of church that's about greater things? Let's pray together. Father, the truth is, is that we don't get to choose how we're sent in this world, but it's that we're sent. Father, I'm reminded of that, that truth in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah sees himself as so sinful, Lord. And you come and you, you touch his lips with that burning coal and you purify him, you make him new. And the first thing that he says is you ask the question, who will go for us and declare the kingdom of God and his righteousness? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Father, would that be New City Church's story? That we would say, here I am, send me. Because the gospel is such good news that it's not even about me anymore. Father, would you meet us this morning as we think about the greater things that you've called us to as we think about this table, as we think about the next season of our church, Father, would it be so different that it's we can't even almost recognize what it was like three years ago because you've done so much work in our midst. So Lord, we pray you'd meet us here this morning. Many of us have thought uh, just incorrectly and sinfully about what you've done for us. We've thought way too much is dependent upon us, but you're the one keeping us, and we need to be reminded about that this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.